0: Welcome to episode eleven of the Napoleon Podcast, David Markham. You've just spent a few days running a Napoleonic conference in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about uh, the last week.
1: Well, Cameron, it's uh, it's been a wonderful experience. Uh, as, as many of our listeners know, I'm, I'm president of the Napoleonic. Uh, which is one of the two American groups; uh, the other one being the Napoleonic Society of America. Uh, the first thing I'll mention, just briefly, for those people out there who are aware that we had these two groups that split apart a number of years ago. The really good news is that the two groups are now going back together again, which will uh, give us an opportunity to to work together and to to uh, promote Napoleon in in the United States at least uh, in a unified manner. But as far as the weekend is concerned. Uh, it's, it's really like you died and went to heaven. Uh, you's, you're here for uh, three days, and you have uh, 50 or 60 uh, people who share your passion for Napoleonic history, uh, and they've all come together. I put together a number of really fine speakers, so Friday night uh, banquet and all day Saturday and the Saturday night banquet, uh, we listen to some of the world's top experts talk about Napoleon and, and take questions and so on. We had uh, several tables uh, of a bourse where you could buy sort of Napoleonic goodies including a few that i sold uh, and then on uh, uh sunday we we loaded into a few vans and and we visited three really fine collections of the pacific northwest uh a lot of folks are surprised but we have uh, up here in the the pacific northwest uh headquarter in in the olympia uh, seattle area a real cabal of bonapartism we've got more napoleonic folks up here than you'd ever imagine and three of them uh have very fine collections if i may be permitted since since one of them is mine uh and so sunday we visited my collection and had some champagne and hors d'oeuvres and then we went to uh my good friend and vice president uh, john welsh and and uh, looked at his uh uh wonderful uh collection of, of empire furniture and, and and artifacts and then we went to another uh collection uh, uh north of seattle uh which has uh 2,500-square-foot room full of magnificent uniforms. Uh, by the end of the day, we were all exhausted, uh, but we, we couldn't have imagined uh time so when it was all done uh, I don't think anyone felt that they uh, uh, were anything but delighted that they came out to Seattle our next conference will be next October the 13th uh, that weekend in in Chicago uh, anybody out there who would like to spend a nice weekend uh, visiting with people who share their passion for Napoleonic history uh, that's the place to be
0: Well, it sounds like it was a fun time, and as you know, I I had really intended to be there this year, but uh, events got the better of me, and I'll have to... I'll have to make it to some of your uh, conferences there over the course of the next 12 months, but I do feel a responsibility to our audience of this show. As I mentioned to you just before we started recording, David, we had uh, just shy of 4,000 people come in and listen to the podcast last month, in the month of August anyway, for the record. So uh, welcome to the thousands of new listeners that we've gained from somewhere mysterious uh, over the course of the last couple of months. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, welcome indeed. And as... As I put on uh, one of the posts that I did, and for those of you who aren't aware, you can go to the podcast uh, website and and post your comments. And and I want to thank so many of you for the wonderful comments that you have made. Uh, I'm always fascinated to know just uh, where our listeners come from. So feel free to uh, to post or, or email us uh, and, and let us know uh, if you first of all whether you like the show or have any suggestions and also where where you are uh, my, my book Napoleon for dummies is now in Dutch and French so if you're in any of those areas you can you can read it in your language and not even have to worry about about English uh, but whether you're in Australia or North America or, or Europe or Latin America wherever you you happen to be, uh, Uh, One of the neat things about the Internet is that it reaches everywhere. And one of the neat things about Napoleon is that he is popular everywhere. Uh, You put those two things together, and and we probably have a pretty nice assortment of people from around the world. And I think that up there around 4,000 people is just wonderful. Of course, a lot of folks would never believe that 4,000 people actually would want to listen to me. So So I assume they're here listening to you, Cameron. (laughs)
0: haha <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's true at all, but um, I, I think most people I know would be hard-pressed to believe that there are 4,000 people in the world who give a damn about Napoleon at all, so uh, there goes the show. Now, uh, we better get on with the show. Um, as we uh, concluded episode number 10 of the Napoleon podcast, we had... Just to remind people, because it has been about six weeks since we recorded it. We had uh, First Consul Bonaparte uh, marching back into uh, Italy to refight the Austrians, which sort of culminated with the Battle of Marengo, which was a magnificent victory, not completely owing to Napoleon, but some fabulous strategy. And we went into detail last time. And which we, we kind of cut short the last episode just before or just uh, uh, at the moment of the the peace, the Treaty of Luneville, which was signed in February eighteen o one, which basically put Napoleon's France at peace with all of the countries of Europe, with uh, the exception of course of england and and that's really what we're going to discuss. In this episode, is that period of time from February 1801 through to 1803, where France was at peace with Europe, and Napoleon really went to extreme lengths to put try and put together a lasting peace with England and with Europe. So, why don't you explain to us a little bit about you know what life was like for Napoleon after the Treaty of Lunéville in 1801, David?
1: Well, first of all, of course, he, he was once again a great hero in, in, in his home country of France. He he returned to uh, cheering crowds and so on. Uh, the Peace of Louisville had given France the, uh, the West Bank of the Rhine River. It had forced uh, Austria to agree to the uh, terms of the Treaty of Campo Formio uh, and uh, to, to give up the Holy Roman Empire. And essentially, uh, it really set Napoleonic France uh, in, in, in pretty good shape. Uh, It gave them some territories in in Italy and and elsewhere. Uh, And more importantly, perhaps, it eliminated, for the time being, uh, the last continental opposition to Napoleon. Uh, Basically, at this point, uh, the continent of Europe was uh, at peace with Napoleon. It was not necessarily... a peace that they all fully loved. Uh, uh, it was an uneasy peace, to say the least, in some areas. But nevertheless, the fighting had stopped. There was really only one country by 1801 uh, that was truly uh, against, standing against uh, Napoleonic France. And that, of course, was, was Great Britain.
0: Now, what was their issue with France at this time? He was at peace with the rest of Europe. Um, what was their problem with him?
1: Well, I would say there's probably two fundamental problems that they had. Uh, first first of all, they did not like having... Uh, France controlling so much of the coastline right across from them uh, that would be a potential uh, springboard for an attack against Great Britain. Uh, England, of course, had been concerned about that for hundreds of years, and there's no question with a leader like Napoleon on the throne, uh, they they were really concerned about that. The other thing, uh, Cameron, is that British policy always was based on the idea of a balance of power on the continent. They felt that their security was best served if no one country had been able to gain hegemony over the rest of Europe. As long as there were two or three or four countries of more or less equal power Great Britain felt safe. And that was no longer the case. Clearly Napoleonic France was first among equals uh, and with this peace they were at least in theory in a position where they could uh, be a real threat to Great Britain. So Great Britain wasn't very happy about it, but Great Britain couldn't do a whole lot about it either, uh, because without allies on the continent, they were in no real position to take on um, essentially all of the continent all by themselves.
0: Mm. Now, uh, William Pitt was the Prime Minister of England at the time, and Obviously, he was replaced. There there was a a certain sense of admiration in England, though, for Napoleon. I mean, continuously through his reign, as we've discussed before. But uh, at this particular time, Pitt was replaced by Henry Addington as Prime Minister, not for very long. But that that sort of gave Napoleon an opportunity to to reach out for some peace, didn't it?
1: Well, it did. Uh, Addington really... Did not want to to be at war. He didn't necessarily have the greatest uh, trust and and and, and touchy feely feelings for uh, uh, Napoleon, but but he also recognized the real politique of the day, and and uh, he also liked Napoleon. That he, Addington, would be better off and that England would be better off if they could regroup in peace, work on their economy, deal with some of their own internal uh, issues. Uh, One of the reasons he was in uh, was this issue of Catholic emancipation in Ireland, so they had the Irish thing to deal with. And, and, and so, yes, he decided that it was uh, worth the effort to have some kind of a peace agreement. And, and, and maybe just as important is that uh, the British people were tired of war, as well as the French. You know, All of Europe was really tired of it. And all of Europe, including the British people, thought, well, let's at least catch our breath. Let's at least see if we can somehow... Uh, find a way to get along with, uh, with uh, France and, and, and with Europe. And at any rate, they didn't have a whole lot of choice. Their naval power, particularly after they destroyed the, the Danish fleet and so on, uh, it was strong enough that they could probably defend themselves quite well against any invasion attempt. But you cannot defeat Napoleon simply by attacking with ships. You know, that doesn't work too well, you know. You bombard the port, bombard the ports, and then what do you get? Uh, You've got to have an army. And the British army was certainly not large enough to take on Napoleonic France with all of its allies uh, on the continent. So peace did seem to be the appropriate thing, and peace it would be.
0: Mm. Now, around about this time in March 1801, another event occurred which to a degree, changed the landscape in Europe. Napoleon had a reasonably good relationship with Tsar Paul I of Russia, who was assassinated. And if I remember correctly, his uh, successor, his son Alexander, was uh, kind of implicated in the assassination, wasn't he?
1: Well, a lot of folks thought that, that Alexander may very well have uh, been the one to... Uh to kill uh, kill his father Tsar uh, Paul uh, frankly I wouldn't be wildly surprised uh, Paul was seen by some at least as being a bit on the mad side uh, some of the folks in, in Russia didn't appreciate the fact that he did cozy up at least somewhat to Napoleon and the assassination of Tsar Paul really was sort of a blow to Napoleon's dreams of a lasting peace for a variety of reasons. For one thing, uh, he had organized what he called the Armed Neutrality League, uh, this is Tsar Paul I of Russia had organized this neutrality league, which included Russia, Sweden, Denmark, and Prussia, which was essentially uh, going to take the the uh, northern countries, you know, out of any action and deny uh, their ports and their ships to the British. Moreover. Great Britain was very concerned that Denmark that which which had a very nice fleet by the way uh, although it was officially neutral uh, was quite likely to to either willingly allow its fleet to be used or to be unable to prevent its fleet from being used in an invasion of England. And Napoleon had at one point thought about invading England uh, by first invading Ireland, where he expected to be overwhelmingly uh, popular, uh, and then using Ireland as a springboard to invade England. Whether or not that ever would have worked or not is hard to say, but the assassination of Paul I Uh, really didn't help uh, that possibility. And and then, of course, uh, you also have the fact that Admiral Nelson uh, goes into the uh, Copenhagen Harbor uh, in, in March of 1801. And, and and actually, in April is, is when the action takes takes place, uh, and they basically destroy uh, the the uh, the navy. And, well,
0: and hold take on. Let's, <laughs> let's let's not get to that too quickly. You, you're robbing me of one of my great, you know, two a.m. fantasies, where I think, gee, how great, <laughs> how terrific would it have been? And if Napoleon had actually, we should do a whole episode on this. If Napoleon had actually managed to get to Ireland round up a bunch of irish anti-british rebels and invade britain and just kick their butts from one from the the tip of scotland the northern tips of scotland down to the southern tips of wales and uh it would have just been a magnet australia would be a french colony now i'd be eating real cheese Yes, I
1: suppose you would. I knew there had to be a a motive in your uh, description there.
0: But, I mean, seriously, I mean, that that was... You were talking before about this desire on behalf of the British people (laughs) to end the war or to to, to at least have a, a break in the hostilities. Now, it wasn't because they were really directly involved. You know, there hadn't been a French army on British soil... They had obviously been uh, funding a lot of the, you know, uh, military aggression in Europe, so it was costing them economically. You had the beginnings of a continental system starting to emerge with Paul, uh, that was going to, you know, launch even further economic warfare on the Brits. But the third thing, as you say, was Napoleon set up camp at Boulogne. And was actively looking at building a navy, getting ships from Spain and invading England. Now, to me, that's one of the all-time great, you know, as short-lived as it was, one of the all-time great moments in Napoleonic history where the Brits are suddenly faced with this idea of Napoleon landing on their shores. And I don't think anybody has had too many doubts that if he actually set foot on the country, it would have all been over Red Rover.
1: Well, yes. If he would have gotten a, a substantial army uh, uh, to to the British Isles, I think that it might very well have been uh, all over for him. After all, as you say, the Irish and the Scots were were no great fans of of, 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 of the British and and the Welsh either. I suppose. Uh, it's, it's a little inaccurate, though, to say that they are suddenly uh, faced with this. Uh, they were faced with this quite for quite some time. In 1798, you may recall, when Napoleon ultimately goes to uh, Egypt, the first thought was to send him uh, across the uh, Channel, and, and Napoleon studied the situation and, and recommended against it. Uh, here, here we are in 1800-1801. Uh, the, same, the same possibility exists. Napoleon certainly is prepared to do this if necessary. Necessary uh, events uh, overtake him, and, and 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 peace overtakes him in, in a sense, and and that invasion is never uh, made. Uh, and then again, as we'll see later, uh, in another episode in 1805, exactly the same thing. Napoleon sitting on the coastline of Bologna, and and is, is thinking very seriously about attacking uh, across the channel, uh, but instead, uh, for reasons we'll uh, learn later, uh, he turns around, goes to the center. Of Europe and 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 has his great victory uh, over the Austrians and Russians at Austerlitz. So you know it's been kind of an ongoing thing. Uh, you can still buy on on the market uh, placards that were being distributed by people. You know, to arms, to arms. The the usurper is coming. You know, and and all sorts of of uh, caricatures of of Napoleon. Uh, you know, usually a short, skinny little run of a guy leading. You know. Ships across the uh, the ocean, uh, while the the uh, British government looks on in dismay, and so forth and so on. So uh, it's it's been around for a while, but well, it's, with it's, the Spanish fleet and and the, uh, the the Danish fleet available, it was a pretty serious possibility.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not a new idea, but now that he has peace with the rest of Europe. He has, you know, much more time and energy and assistance to devote to it. I, I just want to read a letter here, too. It's it's not really relevant, but I, I don't want to forget it before we move on, because it's kind of from around this period. Now, um, this will become more relevant later on uh, when we look at once the Bourbons came back into power of France, how they treated Napoleon in his exile... It's interesting to look at how he communicated with them during their exile at around this period. This is an excerpt from a letter Napoleon wrote to the Count de Provence, who would later become Louis Eighteenth. He was the elder of Louis XVI's uh, surviving brothers, the Comte de Provence. Now, at this time, he was a refugee in Russia. And Napoleon writes a letter which in part says, I have received your letter. I thank you for your kind remarks about myself. You must give up any hope of returning to France. You would have to pass over 100,000 dead bodies. Sacrifice your private interests to the peace and happiness of France. History will not forget. I am not untouched by the misfortunes of, of your family. I will gladly do what I can to render your retirement pleasant and undisturbed. What a, what a marvelous statesman-like letter for him to write, or for Talleyrand to write on his behalf. I'm not quite sure, but it's a tribute. Well, to him. well,
1: you're you're absolutely correct, and I think we actually may have mentioned this uh, an episode or two ago, because uh, when Napoleon took power uh, with the coup de Pétit de Brumaire. Uh, and became first council. A lot of the royalists, and included the Comte de Provence, had hoped that okay, Napoleon has ended the revolution, has reestablished order, and now will surely be willing to bring us the Bourbon back to the throne. And and so uh, you know, basically, uh, Provence writes this letter. Well done, my boy. Uh, congratulations appreciate all you've done. Now I'm sure you'd like to to have me come back and and I'll surely have a great role for you in, in, in my new administration. Uh, and that's when Napoleon writes this letter that you you read, and it's it's one of Napoleon's classic letters. You know, uh, uh, forget about it, fella. You want if you were to try to come back, you know, a hundred thousand dead Frenchmen would would, uh, would would litter your path. And I, I think they got the message. But That's it, when they turned around and started trying to kill him uh, by assassination instead,
0: which we will which we will cover in, in uh, I'm sure probably the next episode. But oh, it's yes. it, it's just the statesmanship of his letter and how he you know offers to look after them in their retirement, make sure it's undisturbed and peaceful, and to do what he can. And well, well Napoleon's is a
1: brilliant a brilliant statesman and diplomat. You know, you're you're completely right, Cameron, as always. Uh, you know, and you you picked one of the finest examples of of this. You know. Napoleon wants peace. And he he's not trying to be in your face to them. He didn't send them a letter saying, you know, you guys screwed screw yeah, things he's up. Not, he's not
0: thumbing his nose me. at them.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and he does this with the Brits. He does this with others. He negotiates a treaty. He looks for ways to, to get to yes as 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 they say in business negotiations, I guess. And and he does. He gets to yes. In fact, it gets to a, a resounding yes, as we'll see, because the ultimate uh, peace is very much in France's uh, favour.
0: One of the other points I just want to mention before we, we move on, one of the other reasons I believe why King George the Third and his government in England uh, really uh, had been avoiding peace up until this time, uh, apart from the economic concerns and the concerns of a Napoleonic invasion, are also the genuine concerns that with a successful post-revolutionary France led by Napoleon at peace with the rest of the royal heads of Europe, if the re- revolution survived, and, and you know we've mentioned this many times on the show, a successful revolution in France would lead the people of other European countries, still with royal heads of family, to also consider, well, what do we need this king and these nobles for? Why don't we get rid of them and have a government like they have in France. That looks mightily good. Why don't we have one of those? So they they were determined to make sure that uh, if it was in their power to bring back a nice steady feudal system, to uh, it was worth the investment. Of at this time, the war had already cost England over four hundred million pounds. Which were, And set it off the gold standard. I mean, the, the economic impact already to date uh, in England of their investment in a war against France was massive, massive.
1: Oh, it was, it was absolutely devastating to, to the British economy, and that's one of the reasons why the, the, the British people were interested in, in not having to support that, that kind of thing. There's another thing that I think needs to be mentioned as well, uh, and, and I mentioned this in, in, in both of my biographies that I've written. Ironically, Great Britain and Napoleonic France share the title of you know the most enlightened country you know we talk about how the the, uh, the countries of europe are very very concerned that the idea of the revolution will take place and people will look around and say well why do we need a king why do we need a czar why do we need an emperor that sort of thing there was probably some fear of that in england but the british system was different than say the Austrians or the Prussians or the Spanish. The the British people already had a more enlightened system going for them than the rest of Europe save for Napoleonic France. Uh, They had things like habeas corpus, they had constitutional uh, protections, they had a a parliament which while it might not be the most democratic institution in the world was nevertheless an opportunity for for British representation so they had more in common with the enlightened rule of napoleon than they did with the despotic rule you know uh, in 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 spain or prussia or or russia or or or, or austria uh, so there was probably this sense on the part of at least some people and there was a very strong pro french pro peace party in Uh, Great Britain Uh, but there was this feeling on the part of some people that by golly we ought to be at peace there's no particular reason why we should see each other as a threat now I don't know that's the majority opinion it is certainly not the opinion that ultimately will hold sway in Great Britain's uh, governmental policies but there was enough of that that Addington and others were really under a great deal of pressure To at least make one great try at peace. And Napoleon wanted to make one great try at peace. And so for both sides, it made a lot of sense to make the effort. And again, you have to remember, uh, France has the upper hand at this point. Great Britain, you know, wakes up one morning, as it were, and all of a sudden, all of its allies have disappeared. So the pressure is really, truly. On Great Britain, and uh, uh, so on we go.
0: So, uh, as I mentioned briefly before, King George III, who, by the way, around about this time quietly dropped the uh, agile title of King of France from his title, which I guess had come over in 1066 with the Norman invasion, uh, William the Conqueror. Coming in from Normandy, uh, the the kings of England from that time forwards had considered themselves the rightful kings of France, but uh, this was kind of dropped now. And uh, George III and William Pitt had a disagreement around concessions to Catholics, and Pitt made this a a pretext for resigning as Prime Minister and was replaced by uh, Henry Addington who uh wasn't overly popular in fact there was a saying in england at the time apparently as london is to paddington so pitt is to addington now (laughs) i haven't spent a lot of time in london or paddington but i don't think this was very complimentary
1: i i've been to paddington and i've been to london and and uh Numerous times in both cases, and I would say that yeah, that's probably not uh, very complimentary.
0: I'm not sure if we have any British listeners, but uh, if we do have any listeners coming to us from London or Paddington, perhaps they can jump on the comments and uh, and and just clarify that for us. But it was well, really,
1: yeah, and and, and that, that's that's right, uh, and I hope they do. And, and by the way, I also wanted before all the Brits uh, out there, you know, uh, throw their computers or their iPods or whatever out the window in <laughs> disgust. Uh, remember, we're talking Talking about British policy uh, some 200 years ago, uh, uh, I'm a great fan of Great Britain. I go to I go to the UK quite frequently. I was just in Scotland this past summer, so you know that was then. This is now. But uh, when it comes to British uh, policy 200 years ago, it possibly could have been a little bit better.
0: 200 years later, and they've still got a bloody queen and royal family. I mean, come <laughs> on, people. Get with the program. Anyway, um, so this well, was. Well, now
1: I'm going to give the other side. I remember when the queen was coronated back in 52, I guess it was, 53. I was a mere lad in those days, <laughs> but I remember thinking that was pretty cool, and, and whether or not we, you know, the, the, the British people want to end up keeping the throne. It is fine, but but I have nothing but but enormous respect for for Queen Elizabeth the the person anyway.
0: Well, let's so not they, go there. I, I get in enough trouble uh, from our listeners for slagging off about contemporary American politics, so I better not touch the British system, or I'll just well, that's that's uh, right. We we, more trouble. We,
1: we we both we both have taken off after uh, President Bush and, and Iraq a little bit. I don't suppose we need to 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 go elsewhere.
0: <laughs> well, we won't have to talk about um, that in this episode because this episode's all about. Peace, and people trying right. to create peace. So n- nothing to talk about Bush in an episode on peace. Um <laughs> I'm okay, get la- that. Ladies, and, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, his last name is spelled
1: R-E-I-L-L-Y, and you may direct all of your hate mail to his direction, although it's got to be said that there's probably a few of you who agree with him too. I
0: would, I would highly recommend you uh, direct your complaints to the CEO of the podcast network. He's my boss. Forward it to him and see if you can get him to sack me.
1: You are the you are the CEO of the podcast, aren't you?
0: Oh yes, that's right I am. Oh well that's yes. probably not gonna work then. Nice try. <laughs> so um so there was this this uh, renewed uh, peace discussions now between Napoleon and or, or France and England, which leads to the Treaty of Amiens, which was signed in March 1802. Why don't we? Uh, seeing as we've already been talking for over half an hour, why don't we? Why don't we get stuck into the Treaty of Amiens?
1: Yes, we discussed uh, before uh, we went on the air that uh, because I had such a long weekend and so on, my voice is a little ragged, this might be a short episode. Uh, and, of course, uh, I chuckled at the time, knowing full well that we are incapable of having a short episode. Uh, that, but only because our listeners demand that we give them their full money's worth with each time. So right. we'll work on that. Well, they, they, they met in the town of Amiens in France. Uh, hence the, the, the title uh, Napoleon's brother Joseph actually represents uh, uh, Napoleon in the negotiations uh, and uh, they they are debating back and forth about who has to do uh, remember Napoleon although he is sort of in the catbird seat here he's lost Tsar Paul he's lost the Danish fleet so in his interest to come up with something that said the Treaty of Amiens was about as good as, as France could ever have expected. The British are going to leave Egypt. They're going to leave the island of Malta. What's France going to leave? No, not much. Okay. And indeed, uh, Great Britain recognizes that France will control the Netherlands, the West Bank of the Rhine, where they are a few places in Italy including the Piedmont and Nice uh, Napoleon says well I'll tell you what I'll give back the papal states to the Pope and uh well that's fine napoleon's trying to to cozy up to the pope and to catholicism in general anyway so that's really to napoleon's interest even though it goes on the ledger book as as something that that, that france is is giving up uh he gives back to the region called uh, Toronto uh, the peninsula Toronto peninsula to Naples well of course he's going to end up uh, putting his brother on the throne of Naples so that's not really a a real big deal Uh, and and he says well you know I've always kind of coveted Switzerland but sure we'll continue to to recognize that the Swiss are going to be neutral and that's about it so France really comes off better except for one thing There's one thing where they both come out, I think, equal. It's in both their interests to an equal level, and that is the peace itself. Both sides really, really needed peace, and both sides got it. And the damn shame of it all is, what would history have been like? And what would the lives of the people of Europe, including Great Britain, France, all the rest of them, have been like if somehow this peace, which we all know didn't last very long, but if somehow this peace of Amiens could have been maintained for four, five, ten years, you know, you know, on into the future. Napoleon wanted that. I'm convinced of it. I believe many of the British people wanted it. I don't think the British government really wanted it or certainly sort of didn't expect it. Uh, but if it could have happened, it would have been magnificent in its impact on history and never mind history as it affects us but just the lives of the people of the day imagine all the people who would have been killed in these wars that were brought on because the peace of Amiens was broken anyway now we have peace and, and Cameron we enter one of the most incredible little periods of history certainly of the Napoleonic period but really about any time people wake up one morning and there's no war anywhere there's no enemies anywhere there's no significant restrictions on travel anywhere in Europe it's almost like they had woke up one morning and there's the European Union you know Uh, it wasn't quite like that but in a sense it was in the sense that no one was fighting and you go where you wanted to and you know where they went they went to Paris and the reason they went to Paris was to see Bonaparte. Bonaparte was the man of the hour. Think about, all the listeners out there, think about what he's done in just a few short years. You know, We're talking uh, 1802 here. It was ratified on March 25th of 1802. He took power two years earlier. He, he first burst onto the scene in a really, really big way uh, six years earlier in 96, with the Italian campaign. And in six years since Italy, he has brought peace to the continent. And people go to 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 Paris to see him. People that go there the most are the Brits. The British people are absolutely fascinated with him. If you if you buy my dummies book or if you if you come to my house sometime, uh, I've got a, a number of images, including uh, two engravings, which I remember are in the book. Uh, that were made by Britain, by by artists in Britain, showing this 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 Napoleon. Members of the nobility would proudly display a uh, parian or, or marble or bronze busts of First Council Bonaparte in their homes. You know, which is just incredible. I mean, this is the ogre of Corsica. This is the great usurper, and so forth, that we'll hear. And yet, here they are. You know, celebrating him. Uh, and 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 images of napoleon can be found all over europe snuff boxes uh engravings medallions and so on uh napoleon of course doesn't exactly sit on his laurels he he gets right to work reforming the country uh You know, hiring more police for the highways, uh, rebuilding, enlarging the louvre, creating jobs, improving water quality, uh, all the things that you would expect uh, a a person like Napoleon to do. no, uh, he's already cozied up to the pope for the concordat and so forth. All these things we've talked about—it's uh, well, absolutely wonderful.
0: That's worth mentioning because the the concordat with the pope was actually publicly announced at the same time as the army entry, even though it had been signed six months previous. So it was an amazing time. All of a sudden, he's uh, you know announced a new peace with the the pope. And, of course, the other thing that happens uh, in rapid succession on the back of his popularity is, first of all, Bonaparte has made first consul for another 10 years. And then, of course, through a, a public vote, he has made first consul for life. Now... Yep. This, uh, actually starts creating enemies where he previously had friends, uh, Madame de Stael and a lot of people who had previously been supporters of Napoleon all of a sudden start to see him consolidating this power that he's received and, uh, he, he, he starts to get a lot of internal opposition Perhaps uh, for the first time in his rapid rise, he starts to experience a lot of internal dissent, uh, at least in the uh, you know, the outspoken members of the, the salons and the cafes around Paris. So there's, well. some, there's some bad that comes with the good.
1: He he gets he gets some of that. I think that he, he's going to get more of that after Amien fails, and and he's going to get even more of that. You know, when he becomes uh, emperor, uh, he's still pretty doggone popular. The the, the there's there's a few uh, nattering nabobs of negativism as as a famous American politician once once complained about about people who didn't approve of his policies. Uh, there were a few of those folks around. There. There, But at age 33, on August 15th, uh, Napoleon could look around him and say, you know, life is good. Uh, One of the things, for example, and this is why I think he was still extremely popular with the people, is the economy, which he had already turned around from the basket condition had been, immediately took off. Because one of the demands that the French had had was a guarantee of neutral seas the british and this again to our british friends uh had some policies that are a little bit hard to justify they had a policy for example that said uh they could board uh any uh ship that they wanted to and they could stop any shipment that they wished if they thought this shipment might somehow be a contrary to british interests in other words it might be going to france or it might be going to somebody else that they didn't like uh, or it might be competing with their own uh, uh... manufacturers and so on they could simply board ships and 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 uh, force them to turn around or, or or destroy the goods uh... they had uh, impressment uh, where if you were a young lad uh, and, and having a drink in the bar, uh, all of a sudden, uh, three or four thugs would come, grab you, take you through this tunnel. Next thing you know, uh, you're on a British man of war uh, for the next 15 years or whatever. Uh, and and this, uh, this neutrality of the seas, uh, I don't know about the impressment, but it got rid of this boarding business. And as a result... Ships from all over the world could go back and forth to Europe, between Europe and England and so on, uh, with without being harassed. It was t- today's equivalent of NAFTA or something, you know, uh, a free trade agreement, the GATT agreements and so on. And you have increasing jobs you've got unemployment or rather employment soaring unemployment dropping uh napoleon institute's public work systems etc i mean it was so good that somebody probably said you know pinch me because this is too good to be true and as we all know sadly it was fact, too good to be true
0: before we, before we get into the complete collapse of Armien, there's something that I don't have in the show notes. So I'm just going to spring it on you and see how quickly you can respond to this. Listen oh, to, you're asking a lot. This is a test of uh, his ability to talk unprepared. We, we um, haven't really covered... We kind of skipped over in this period um, the whole infernal machine affair, which... It took place on Christmas Day in 1800, so it was a couple of years prior to this. But it made me think of it because of the whole console for life issue, which obviously then led into the um, the uh, empire, the emperor ship. Do you call it an emperor ship? Anyway, we we, we should touch upon this, I guess, around this period because it, again it ties in with. Uh, you know, the British-funded uh, conspiracies going on, the Jacobin conspiracies going on inside of France around this period, 1800 to sort of 1803, 1804. <coughs> Are you prepared to talk about the Infernal Machine and tell us the story? Because it is one of the most famous... Uh, ...episodes in Napoleonic history, P- pretty much every uh, mini-series is going to cover this, and uh, this is probably a good time to talk about it.
1: Well, sure. I mean, the Infernal Machine is one of those uh, uh, flashpoints in, 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 in the Napoleonic history. Uh, when Napoleon <laughs> takes power uh, as First Council in 1800, clearly not everybody is pleased... By the way, not everybody figured he would last. There were, you know, they figured, okay, we got him now. For for how long? A few months? A year? You know, who's to say? Uh, some of the most radical uh, of the revolutionaries, the, the Jacobin, uh, didn't like the idea of having a military leader. Uh, although they would come to see, uh, to some extent at least, that he was fairly enlightened. Uh, but the royalists were the, the biggest concern. Uh, the the letter that you and I discussed earlier uh, uh, for with the Comte de Provence, uh, uh, where they wanted him to, to bring back the Bourbons. Uh, well, the letter that you read made it clear to the Bourbons that it wasn't going to work, that Napoleon was not going to do it willingly, so okay, if Napoleon won't cooperate, you know, we'll whack him. We'll get rid of him. You know, and... Uh, Uh, That would have probably been fine with an awful lot of the other leaders, at least in part because they realized that Napoleon was so popular with the people of France uh, that there was not too much they they were going to be able to do about it. Uh, So assassination uh, was the way to go. A lot of the royalists, of course, lived in England. The British government gave them nice places to live, paid their expenses, encouraged them to do their work. And so you've got conspirators like Georges uh, George, uh, uh who who basically uh, call him the Osama bin Laden of the day, if you want to. He had these these assassination training camps set up in England, just like the uh, uh, bin Laden and the boys uh, did in, in in Afghanistan with Al Qaeda. Uh, so uh, they're they're working on uh, assassinating Napoleon, and and uh, eventually one of their plots. Uh, uh, it comes to uh, fruition the, the royalists uh, uh, put together uh, something that's called the infernal machine uh, which is a, a, it's a small cart that was loaded with gunpowder and here on Christmas day of 1800 Napoleon and Josephine are going to uh, to see Haydn, a play by Haydn uh, 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 called Creation. I think it was uh, General Rapp, who was one of his aide-de-camp's, Josephine's daughter, Hortense, uh, Napoleon's sister of Caroline. Uh, they were going in two carriages. Napoleon, of course, is in a hurry. So his carriage leaves first. Uh, some folks believe his driver was drunk and therefore careening uh, down the streets. You know, who knows? Uh... The ladies were running a little late. Among other things, one of the ladies decided to change attire, to, to, to change to a different blouse or something. Who knows? Okay? Husbands all around the world can relate uh, to, to, to this, I'm sure, if you will forgive me. Uh, and so as a result, though, the two carriages left you know, several minutes, you know, five minutes or so apart. So there's a big gap and with Napoleon's coach, you know, racing along, the gap is getting bigger. Okay. So they pass through this courtyard area or this this wide area in the street where this cart is. And there's this little, there's this young girl who's watching this this cart. Okay. Uh, The first carriage goes by. The young girl who had no idea what was going on been told to watch the cart with the horse the fuse has been lit the thing blows up after Napoleon's cart, go, carriage goes by before Josephine's carriage gets there the idea was it would blow up and, and destroy Napoleon uh, and his entourage uh, it killed a number of people I think 9 people were killed by the explosion it blew apart several buildings uh, but nobody of the the royal entourage another royal entourage of Napoleon's entourage uh, was killed and Napoleon at first thought it was the Jacobin. Fouche actually tried to convince him of this uh, and and uh, soon enough though we discover or the French discovered that it was uh, the the Royalists and this of course leads to... Uh, a whole bunch of other things, the Duke de Anguillen affair, uh, other assassination attempts are are you know in the works, uh, but they all come to naught.
0: So it was a massive uh, attempt on his life that failed. But as we will see over the course of the next few episodes, <clears throat> this leads to a, a certain level of. Crackdown on revolutionaries and rebels and conspiracy plots across France, led by, well, kind of led by uh, Napoleon's Minister of Police, uh, Fouche. And uh, there's, there's some you know, really interesting episodes that come out of that that uh, turn the opinion of some of the elite, I guess, against Napoleon in France. But also. Well, well, it does lead to this this journey towards trying to secure his power base which was partly the first consul for life and, and then obviously leads directly into him becoming the emperor.
1: Sure and I should point out uh, I mentioned it in passing Napoleon once he realises that it's the royalists comes up with the idea or actually I think Cagliaran comes up with the idea let's send them a message Let's make sure they understand it. They're going to screw around with me. It's going to cost them. And so they they look around for, well, what Bourbon can we get our hands on? Of course, a lot of them were in Russia or in England. They were out of the way. Uh, but one of the princes uh, was living really just across the border. Uh, Louis-Antoine, the Duke of Anguillen, was living in, in, in Baden, which is just across the border, and uh, And unlike what some Napoleon haters out there will try to tell you, he was not an innocent bystander who just happened to be a Bourbon. He had sworn to bring down uh, the French Revolution. He had sworn to bring down Napoleon. And in his little trial, he he didn't recant any of that. Uh, He's a French noble in exile admittedly but a French noble uh, swearing to bring down the will of the people as expressed through the revolution and then later through, through the, the French uh, publicites uh, supporting Napoleon we call that treason in most countries and treason is a capital offense so Napoleon's troops uh, arrest the, the duke he's court-martialed uh, and he is shot Uh, by unanimous verdict of what amounts to a court-martial whether that was a good idea or a bad idea you you, you can argue that in many ways it sure as heck has a black mark on the eyes of many Uh, a lot of the the courts of europe were outraged they were really upset it was a scandal Uh, it's really this that begins to turn some of the people like the style and others against Napoleon however it did what it was intended to do it eliminated any further effort at assassination by the Bourbons they realized that if they continued to go after him that Napoleon would probably find a way to get to more Bourbons and if you know a country like England or Russia ever became allied with napoleon even those that were hiding out in those of reasonably safe courts might be in danger and so the bourbons stopped trying to kill him uh the jacobin had stopped trying to kill him or it hadn't really done that much anyway and so napoleon was safe from that kind of domestic uh violence
0: so we, we've we've I didn't really mean to get into the Duke d'Anguillon there uh, so quickly, but we, now that we've covered it, I guess we've covered. it. We skipped ahead, I guess. That's sort of uh, about early 1804, February 1804, I guess, when all of that happens. But and it's obviously one of those episodes in Napoleonic history that. I always cringe I think I mentioned when we did Egypt that I cringe when I read about Egypt and I cringe with this as well because it it does seem to me to be quite heavy handed and uh whilst there are, I can certainly justify it from uh, Napoleon's perspective, I can all, I, I guess this comes of being a liberal. I can also uh, see his opponent's perspective on this when he had already at this point consolidated his power and rule in France, for somebody like that, uh, a member of the Bourbon family, Bourbon family, to be summarily executed that rapidly after being arrested without an open and public trial, without any transparency, was obviously going to have a massive backlash. And I've never quite been sure. I think Napoleon actually denied, at least to Josephine at one stage, because she, she obviously, uh, being a, a former noble and having lots of emigre friends, uh, they were all quite horrified and shocked by this. And he, he actually denied his involvement in the guilty verdict, uh, I think, but I, I don't think anyone was really fooled that the order came from him. Would you agree?
1: Well, it's really hard to say. Uh, I, I tend to to look at the role of uh, Talleyrand, uh, who I believe probably encourage Napoleon to, to take the action and probably encourage the the the, the verdict and then claims uh, that he was trying to to tell Napoleon and not to have, have him executed. I'm not so sure. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on the, the hour by hour communications that, that go on in this. Uh, you know, Napoleon, as all <laughs> leaders, has to take the ultimate responsibility. However, I think that uh, anytime you have somebody, like Talleyrand involved, uh, there's at least some question as to how uh, well-informed Napoleon was and to whether or not Talleyrand's actions and approaches uh, are in the interest of Napoleon or in the interest of Talleyrand. Uh, And we can can talk about this again sometime, and I can try to, to get a little bit more information on it, but the French people didn't seem to mind it that much mm. the courts of europe didn't like it they were furious and you know some of the intellectuals in france were unhappy about it but to most of the french it was hey they're trying to kill our leader and he has struck back uh, to send them a message and what's your problem with that Uh, and I think that's really the attitude that most French took so it didn't do him any good in international relations but it does not seem to have hurt him domestically
0: I mean God it's going to be so hard not to bring com- contemporary American politics into this episode, but I swore I wouldn't do it. I swore I careful, wouldn't do it. Careful, careful. I'm, I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> Heavy-handed counterattacks when you're obviously in a position of power and the impact that has on your profile internationally. But, hey, I'm not going to go there. Um, what, well, what we well should, but, but, but there uh, is a
1: difference. Well, and the difference is that in, in the what you're talking about, the current domestic situation, uh, after a, a brief... Period of sort of American unity and support for the president, uh, the, the president's popularity, and this is not me talking politics. This is just you know read the read the newspapers. His his support has plummeted, whereas Napoleon's support remained high and was high really for most of his uh, reign.
0: Yeah. Okay, please don't tempt me to get involved in talking about... Because it'll just go off the rails.
1: I didn't tempt you, ladies and gentlemen, again. People. His name is C-A-M-E-R-O-N.
0: <laughs> People who are interested in my views can listen to my G'day World podcast and that'll get enough ranting about that. Now, um, we... Well,
1: so I, I also want to... I, I let, me, let me just say in your defense and, and, and in my defense, because I've, I've gotten my digs into it. I know that everybody appreciates it. But it is important that we tie history to to what's going on in the world today uh... there's there's very little point in learning history unless you can learn from history Mm -hmm. and when i teach i always try whatever i'm teaching whatever period of history i mean i have to teach a lot more than than napoleon i'm sad to say i would be happy if they pay me just to teach the french revolution to napoleon and forget about the rest of the world in the rest of time periods they don't let me do that but whenever i'm teaching anything whether it's a roman empire uh uh or, or charlemagne or, or or the renaissance or, or as the brits would say the renaissance uh you always have to say well how did this affect today what's going on today that we can where we can see some parallels from what went on then what mistake?" That people make or what good things did people do then that we might want to try to either avoid or emulate today. And that's the whole point of history and so yeah it's perfectly fair to, to make not maybe personal attacks I, I don't want to do that on a program like this but to say that as a matter of policy maybe if, if an administration of any number of countries had a little bit better understanding of history Then they might not make some of the same same mistakes they do. And by the way, that's not just true with the invasion of Iraq or something. It's it's true in terms of economic policy, overall diplomatic policy, uh, a whole lot of other areas where we can learn from history if we simply make the effort but a lot of politicians and it's not just Bush it's not just Republicans it's Democrats it's, it's it's Labor and Liberals and whatever parties you have in Australia you know humans don't typically learn from history as well as they should and so that's not a partisan issue that's just kind of a, a sad commentary on the human nature
0: so this episode was all going to be about peace with Britain and we've, we've talked about some of the things that are going on. No, it's, it's all been good. We've been talking about what was going on internally in France was, during this period. And, it, and was
1: going, it was going to be short, too.
0: That's right. Now, we're over an hour, well over an hour now, but let's wrap it up. Now, um, the, the Treaty of Amiens basically broke down and Great Britain declared war on France uh, in early 1803. So what led to that?
1: Well, and here my British uh, uh, friends and listeners will perhaps once again not be happy, but I, I lay the, the blame clearly at, 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 the, at the feet of, of the British. Uh, Britain was supposed to abandon Malta, and Britain didn't really like that idea. Malta was a strategic base as far as they were concerned. Uh, one reason that they uh, were willing to do was because they were afraid of the British presence in Egypt. Then they discovered that, the, that the British army in Egypt has defeated the French, uh, French presence in Egypt, I meant, of course. And, and so they were thinking, well, gee, we didn't really have to do all this one. Uh, uh, they didn't have to leave Malta. Now we're going to be giving up all of our influence in the Mediterranean. And so they refused to leave. They come up with various excuses here and there, none of them being particularly uh, good. They complained about Napoleon not engaging in some of the trade things, uh, but Napoleon was moving forward on the trade field and and things were doing fine there. Uh, Well, Napoleon does what he can. He says, listen, the treaty says you have to leave, but you're good buddies with the Tsar. How about if we let Russia... Uh, control Malta and then ask the Tsar to to step in and try to to find a way to get us all to agree on something Uh, All right, how about letting uh, that didn't go over well so he's Napoleon's people say well listen you can keep Malta We'll take back the Toronto Peninsula, which we had uh, given up to Naples. The Toronto Peninsula is, is what you might think of as the heel in the boot of Italy. And that would give France a, a, a good position you know, deep into the Mediterranean. Well, no deal on, on that. Uh, even though that would have, in my view, protected British interests. Now the British have the influence that they wanted in the Mediterranean. I don't really understand that. I kind of understand why they were reluctant to give up Malta, although I will point out they had, by treaty, agreed to do so. If they didn't want to do it, they shouldn't have signed the treaty. Uh, But, okay, sometimes treaties get negotiated. Give up Toronto and and, and, and let... uh, 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 Napoleon have that and and, and then you can have Malta. Well, that's not going to work either. So things get worse and worse and worse. And unfortunately, Great Britain does what Great Britain does best in this period of history. Before they bothered to let anyone know that there's actually going to be war, although it did seem inevitable, they quickly uh, seized all French ships they could get their hands on. Well, when Napoleon hears of this, uh, he starts to do the same thing, and the War of the Third Coalition uh, is about to begin. Uh, Napoleon also, by the way, says, okay, you're going to play that game. He, he uh, freezes the passports of all sorts of British citizens that are in France. Remember, lots and lots and lots of fairly well-to-do uh, Brits are on vacation in, in France, and we're hoping to see Napoleon. Uh, and so these folks are now forced to stay in France they were too young or too old to serve in the militia and the idea being of course uh, that uh, he didn't want these going home and then, and then signing up to fight uh, France so they become essentially prisoners of war a war that was illegally begun uh, by Great Britain called uh, uh and uh, uh, their story is absolutely fascinating and, and indeed I've written some articles on that and hope to do a book on it someday
0: well, so yet again we are able to safely land the blame for the breakdown of peace in Napoleonic Europe by at the at the, the feet of the at the feet of the British. Careful. Uh, yet yet again, uh, you know, proving our claim that we made in the very first episode of this series that Napoleon's reputation as being a warmonger and being so ambitious was really quite unfair. Not to say that the man was a saint, not to say that the man, you know, wasn't aggressive in his own way, but he would run around, particularly during this period, signing peace treaties with other governments, which would, you know, agree and ratify to the terms and then, in one way or another, continually break them and force a a, a new outbreak of conflict across Europe.
1: There is no... There is no doubt in my mind that Napoleon would have been willing to keep that peace indefinitely. With peace on the continent, with the expanded borders up to the Rhine, and with the control of portions of Italy and so on, Napoleon had absolutely no reason to want to fight anyone. It was clearly in his best interest to maintain peace. And uh, it is absolutely sad, you know, a person can argue if they wish that it was in the Great Britain's interest to, to do what it did. I disagree with that. I, I, I hate to pick on Great Britain, again, because of my modern-day feelings for the British. But in this case, uh, Cameron, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there was no good way to justify the breaking of, of the Peace of Amiens.
0: Well... We were, going to, we were going to spend some time on the continental system this episode. I really don't think we can go for two hours in this episode. So we might, no, have, no, to, I,
1: the, we're might have to, have to leave that, that for next time. time. Yeah, next yes, time I,
0: we'll talk about the continental system.
1: Well, the continental system is something that, that has its uh, infancy in, in this period, but it goes on uh, so long and becomes such a factor in so many things that are going to be coming down the pike that think next time we can set the stage for the continental system and then we'll probably find that we go back uh, and, and sort of revisit the continental system and how it's working uh, as, as we move along
0: J David Markham, JDM to his friends, thank you so much for enlightening us once again uh, coming out of a very tiring weekend of Napoleon for you let's do this again soon
1: well, we we certainly will. Maybe even next week we can do something. And I, I want to say to you, Cameron, what I what I've said on some of these postings. You know, it's a real honor to be here and to do this. But but the folks out there have a, a they, they get a real double treat when they get us because you know okay fine maybe I'm the the quote unquote historian that you've got on the show. But your knowledge and your reading of Napoleon and your understanding of this history has ever been as important to making this show successful. As I am, this is a team effort, and I'll tell you, I think we're a hell of a team, and I'm having a ball, and 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 I'm looking forward to uh, to more of the same.
0: And thank you, David. I appreciate that, and I'd sincerely also like to thank all of the people that have just been uh, leaving feedback for us on the comments system. Please, if you if you're listening to the show and you haven't introduced yourself to us in the comments system, please do that. Uh, we we really do appreciate getting your feedback as to. You know the good and and the criticisms. We take the criticisms on board as well. Doesn't mean we're actually going to do anything about them, but we will take them on board. Um, well, we we do generally appreciate the feedback, though.
1: We absolutely appreciate the feedback. If you have things you'd like to see us cover, <clears throat> if you have things you'd like to see us not do or do differently uh, please let us know and while I don't want to invade anyone's privacy I'm not saying leave your name, address, and phone number unless you would like to or your email feel free to leave your email addresses and stuff I guess you have to 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 log on but, but let us know where you're from you know, just say, this is Joe from Great Britain, or this is this is Pierre from France, or this is, you know, David from, from the, United, you know, the United States or, or Australia, whatever, and so that we get a sense of where folks are. I know we've had people from Europe who have written this. I know we've had Americans, uh, including uh, uh, some uh, 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 high school student uh, just uh, uh, a couple of hours south of where I live, uh, which I thought was really kind of neat, and... And uh, I just want to know where you are from and and, and what you like about the show. So let us know and, and keep those postings coming.
0: G'day World, this is Cameron Riley, host of G'day World, the very first Australian podcast ever. Still going strong. Also, the CEO of the Podcast Network. We were the world's very first podcasting business, and we're still one of the largest podcast operations on the face of the planet today. G'day World's a flagship show. I do it a couple of times a week where we basically talk about uh, science and technology. What's going on in the world of podcasting, the struggle of new media versus old media, a little bit of politics, a little bit of history, a little bit of culture, pretty much whatever's on my brain at the time. Usually co-hosted with my mate Richard Giles or a special guest from somewhere in the world. So I hope you'll tune in. uh, G'day Com. We might even teach you how to say g'day like a real Aussie.